So here in just a moment, we're going to start in James chapter 2, verse 14, and uh, we're going to study to the end of chapter 2 this morning. I quite often get asked if I'm cheering for the Patriots. The answer, of course, is yes. The answer is always that uh, since we moved here, I've been a lifelong Patriots fan. (laughs) And as such, you would expect there to be some evidence of my Patriot loyalties. And so if you and I were in conversation and I said, yes, I'm a fan, and my favorite player is the quarterback, Tim Gravy, (laughs) you would raise an eyebrow. You would have questions about my loyalty. My evidence is in short supply, if that's who I think the quarterback is, of our lifelong favorite team. Uh, If I said I was an accountant, you would expect there to be some evidence, some education, some experience to go along with that claim. But if I know nothing of tax law and don't know how to operate a calculator, then my claim might be suspect. The same would be true if I said I was a mechanic or a doctor or a teacher or a dentist. All of those things require some sort of evidence. The claim alone is not merely enough. There has to be education, some experience, something that shows that the claim is true. But what if I were to say to you, I'm saved? What evidence is required of a person to be able to claim, I'm saved? Now, the word saved is a word that we use in the church quite often. And and that word describes a person who has put their trust entirely in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They're not going to rely on their good works, their religious deeds, their morality. But this person trusts in Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, who died on the cross, three days later rose from the dead. They're trusting in Jesus for their salvation. And that's what Jesus does. He saves them. He forgives them for their sin. He gives them eternal life. He holds them securely all the way through. Now, I didn't use the word Christian. I chose the word saved intentionally because the word Christian, well, it has a much lower bar of evidence. In our culture, the word Christian is oftentimes used just as a low descriptor. It it, it means little more than I'm not a Muslim or I'm not Jewish or I'm not nothing It's just a low bar to say, I I belong in this demographic. So Christian has a low level of evidence required, but the word saved, that's something different altogether. Now the passage we're going to study today, it wrestles with the issue of salvation and evidence. Our writer, James, is speaking to a people in a church that seem to have a low view of salvation. In their estimation, All a person has to do is claim simple intellectual belief in Jesus in order to be saved from the penalty of their sin, saved to eternal life. But James says that simply will not do. And he goes on in what we're going to study this morning to help us understand the relationship between genuine saving faith and good works. And this passage works in two different ways. First, it can provide comfort for those of us who struggle with a sense of security in our salvation. You might be in a place in your life where prayer is difficult, Bible study is scant, your affections for Christ seem to be floundering. You might be wondering, am I even really saved at all? 
Well, there's a word of encouragement and comfort for you in James chapter 2, verses 14 and following. But the other way this passage works, it works as a gracious warning to those who are deceived and think they belong to the Lord when they truly do not. James is sounding an alarm for the reader that we would examine our souls, we would examine our lives and ask ourselves the question, does my life give evidence of a sincere, saving faith in Jesus Christ? So my goal today is to clarify the relationship between your faith and your good works. If we study this passage right, then we're going to leave here with a clearer understanding of what saving faith actually looks like. And to do that, I want to show you in our passage three essential characteristics of saving faith. So I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 2. And we pick up in verse 14. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James has in his sights genuine saving faith. He wants you to know that you know that you know that you belong to Jesus Christ. And this chapter is not meant to be a scare tactic, but it is meant to make us examine our lives and our faith. To help us, he gives us three essential characteristics of saving faith. The first essential characteristic is this. Saving faith without obedience is dead. Saving faith without obedience is dead. Verses 14 through 17 spell this out for us. So James begins this section with a couple of rhetorical questions, and those rhetorical questions anticipate a negative response. Look at verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? 
Can such faith save him? Well, James' anticipated response is no. If I say I have a faith in Jesus Christ, but I do not have actions that give evidence of this faith, can that kind of faith save me? A faith without actions, a faith without obedience, can that save me? James is clear. He says, no, it cannot. And then he gives us an example to help us understand better what he's getting at. Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister. So here he's referencing someone within the Christian community. So you're imagining someone, a brother or sister in Christ, who is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What good is that kind of faith? that sees a brother or sister in Christ poorly clothed, poorly fed, struggling in poverty, and you just say, go be warm and well fed. What good is that? It's not any good at all. His conclusion in verse 17 is clear. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. Now, in relationship to this section or this passage, I see a common mistake in regards to prayer. In times of crisis, people will often offer prayers, right? We'll say, I'm praying for you. I'm I'm with you in prayer. We'll say something like that. And oftentimes, we've heard it especially lately, I've heard it often in media in the wake of the hurricanes and all the crises that have been happening in our country. There's a bit of a pushback on that sentiment, the sentiment that I'll be praying for you. And so many people sometimes will go here and they'll say, well, it's good to pray, but remember, faith without actions is dead. But I think that approach to prayer is horribly improper. Prayer is not a wish thrown up to the heavens. It's not a lazy person's work. Prayer captures the ear of God. And the need of the hurting brother or sister is brought before him in glory. And prayer is the means through which heaven's resources are given to those of us in need. So prayer should never be cheapened as a lesser activity. And what James is referencing here in verse 15, or excuse me, verse 16, is actually not prayer at all. When you tell a person, go be warm and well fed, you're not praying for that person. What James has described is a horrific inactivity on the part of one who claims to be a follower of Christ. So does James chapter 2, verses 14 and following say that prayer is not sufficient work for those who are hurting? Absolutely not. (laughs) You better pray for your friends and your loved ones who are hurting. And we better pray as we did this morning for First Baptist Sutherland Springs, Texas. We better pray for our veterans. Our pastors lead us so well in, in prayer here. And then I know so many of you are serious about prayer. Our elders meet once a month to do nothing but pray together. We better pray. It's not a lazy man's work. It is a God-given gift by which we get God's ear. So in this passage, Paul isn't saying prayers less than something else. But to be sure, sometimes you should pray and you should answer that prayer with your own hands at the same time. You may pray for the hurting friend and bake them a casserole and sit with them while they grieve and go with them to the doctor and mow their yard or rake their leaves. Whatever the thing is, you may pray and you may meet the need all at the same time. So James isn't lessening prayer, not at all. If anything, I would say James elevates it if we understand his passage right. 
But to understand better where James is getting at, I want us to hop in the old time machine and let's go back in time three weeks together to the last time we were in James. Last time we were in James, we were studying the first 13 verses of this chapter. And if you remember, James had in his crosshairs the practices of favoritism and discrimination. Remember, he describes this scenario within the church where the wealthy Christian is given preferential treatment, a seat of honor, while the impoverished Christian is told to sit at another person's feet like some sort of animal. And James just eviscerates that attitude and that practice. He says, when you act that way, when you practice discrimination, you don't have the heart of God. And also, you're violating the law of love. In chapter 1, James has also called our attention to hurting people. That, that religion that is pure, that God honors, is that which takes care of orphans and widows in their distress. So it should come as no surprise to us that the example James would use is an example, here in verse 16, of an impoverished Christian who is treated improperly. The brother or sister Christian is only given well wishes. And so it shouldn't surprise us that James concludes that that kind of faith is dead. It's not broken. It's not hurting. It's dead faith. When I claim to be saved by grace through faith, yet I do not practice the same grace to others, the same mercy, there's a problem. There's a brokenness in me in my understanding of my salvation. And that's not just James's conclusion in verse 17. It's his conclusion in verse 20. It's also his conclusion in verse 26. It's as if he's trying to tell us something here this morning. That there is an, there's an inseparable connection between the faith we claim and the life we live. And if I say I have faith, but I have no evidence to back that up in the way I live my life, then my faith is actually a dead faith. There's a second essential characteristic that James gives us in this passage. First of all, he's told us that saving faith without obedience is dead. And now, he tells us that saving faith and obedience cannot be split. You cannot divorce saving faith and obedience. They are inseparably connected. Saving faith and obedience cannot be split. Verses 18 through 20, he helps us understand this. So James continues to solidify his argument in verse 18 having a discussion with an imaginary debater. And in verse 18, the imaginary debater says this, You have faith, I have deeds. Now, there's some question as to how that should be interpreted or understood. My take on it is this. I take James to be saying that there are people in the church who think you can separate faith and works. And either way is going to make you right with Christ. So it's as if a person is saying to James, James, simmer down. It's going to be all right. You say you have works. Good for you. I have faith. Different roads up the same mountain. We're going there together. I've got faith. You've got deeds. We're all in the same Jesus-loving boat. It's going to be all right. But James counters. Verse 18, show me your faith without deeds. And I'll show you my faith by what I do. So you say, I have faith. Where's the evidence? What is it in your life 
the way you speak, the way you treat people, the way you spend your money, the way you think. What is it that gives evidence that Christ is in you? James says, if you want evidence from me, I've got it. And he's not saying this in an arrogant way or a boastful way. He's just stating the obvious, that those who encounter the risen Christ live a different life. Salvation is not merely some heavenly transaction where our account goes from condemned to blessed and then we just live life however we want. When Christ comes to a person, it utterly changes us inside and out. There's a salvation life that follows the salvation moment. So when our faith is put in Jesus Christ and we're forgiven for our lying and our lust in all of our brokenness and rebellion against God, when all that's wiped away, we're replaced, it's replaced with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks on us, He doesn't see us for our good deeds. He sees us for Christ's good deeds. And that looks like something in the way we lead our lives. There's evidence. It's visible. So often when we talk about spiritual things, we'll we'll say oh, it's, it's just it's such, it's a personal matter. And that's a way to shut the conversation down. And it is a personal matter for sure, but it's not a matter without public evidence. Faith without some sort of public evidence, some sort of open visibility, James says is not faith at all. Now this passage, verses 14 through 26 makes so many Christians notoriously squeamish. It's something we are so very uncomfortable with. Now, now the line, faith without works is dead, we're on board with that. But there are places here where James says things that makes us feel like he's running counter to the Apostle Paul, maybe even counter to Jesus. So I want us to take a few minutes and spend some time wading through this discomfort. What is James's relationship to Paul? Here's our struggle. James has told us that faith without deeds is dead multiple times. When we get down to verse 24, he makes this statement. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we all go, <laughs> Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You hold these two statements up against each other and it seems like they contradict profoundly. And James, in order to support his argument, he uses Abraham as someone who was justified by works. And Paul, in order to justify his argument, uses Abraham in Romans chapter 4 as someone who was justified by faith. So when we realize we have this problem, we'll often give a nervous giggle and just hope no one ever asks about it and skip to chapter 3. <laughs> but we don't have to. We don't have to avoid this topic nor be afraid of it. I'm always glad to pass along resources I found helpful. And a chapter in a book that I found particularly helpful is a book called A Theology of James by a guy named Christopher Morgan. Pastor Dave was kind enough to let me borrow it. And 
The reason I reference it is because Morgan says there are three ways that we can respond to the differences between Paul and James. Three main ways. So one way you could react to the differences between James and Paul is to say that James is writing to discredit Paul. James sees Paul as wrong. He's too loose with grace. Someone's got to rein that in, and so it's James to the rescue. And he comes in to make sure that people understand that salvation, it may be by grace, it may be free, but there's still requirements involved in all of this. And the major proponent of this view was our favorite former monk, Martin Luther. That guy couldn't stand the book of James. In fact, he called it a straw gospel. If he was putting together the books of the Bible, he would leave James out of the picture. Luther, for all the great things he did, this is one area where you and I might say, I don't know, Martin, when he creates a canon within the canon, a Bible within the Bible that doesn't include James. I was telling one of our pastors this week, it just dawns on me how ironic it is that as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we're in James! So Luther looks at James and he sees nothing of value. He says, James doesn't match with Paul. Worse than that, he doesn't even match with Jesus. Therefore, just leave it alone altogether. But I'm glad to say that Luther, in this area, his straw opinion is easily refuted. Second approach is to say this, is to say, well, the reason James and Paul contradict each other or look like they do is because James is actually writing to correct Christians who have misinterpreted Paul's writings. So James and Paul, they know each other. They, they meet face-to-face in Acts chapter 15. Um, we know that they're aware of each other. And so it could be that James ha- has witnessed in some of these churches that people take a gospel of grace and use it as a license for sin. And so here he's not contradicting Paul. He's actually helping Paul by bringing the church back into uh, their sanctification and a right understanding of salvation. The major proponent of this view is a well-known author, pastor, John Piper. And Piper makes a compelling argument that ultimately if you want to get on board with it, you can and that's okay. That, That would be just fine. Now, I don't agree with Piper's explanation that this is what James is ultimately doing. And if you ever see Piper and you tell him that I disagree with him, I will deny it to his face. (laughs) But I think there's a third approach, a, a better approach, and that approach says this, that there is actually no contradiction at all between James and Paul. How can you say that? James says we're justified by works, not by faith alone, Paul says we're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. How can you say there's no contradiction? Well, it's quite easy, actually. Paul and James are answering two different questions regarding the relationship of works and salvation. Paul is answering this question. Can my good works suffice for my salvation apart from faith? If I am circumcised, if I observe the law, if I keep dietary rules, if I keep the holy days, if I do these things, and even if I do these things and add in a little bit of faith, will I be saved? And Paul's answer is no, absolutely not. 
Good works are not the entrance to salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Not by works. We just read it a little bit ago. Not by works so that no one can boast. The only works that accomplish your salvation are the works of Christ crucified and risen again. That's it. So do my good works bring me into salvation? No, absolutely not. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ. When James addresses good works, he addresses it from a different perspective entirely. James is not speaking of works in the same way Paul is. James not, is not answering the same question. Again, Paul's answering the question, can good works lead to my salvation? The answer is no. James is answering this question. Should my salvation result in good works? And the answer is, you better believe it. Absolutely. Otherwise, there's no salvation. If your life does not give evidence through good works, then you're a person who is apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks of works prior to salvation. James speaks of works that come from salvation. Paul is speaking of religious deeds like circumcision and keeping the law. James is speaking of the fruit of salvation. These are his good works. Things like caring for the orphan and the widow, persevering in trials, not showing favoritism, not practicing discrimination. These are the evidences of a life that has come into contact with Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, James never eliminates faith as the conduit of salvation. At no point does James say salvation doesn't happen by faith. In fact, just the opposite. If you were to scroll back up to chapter 2, verse 5, James says, God has chosen those who are rich in faith to inherit the kingdom of God. So when Paul says salvation is by grace through faith and not by works, James says Amen. And when James says, the life that is saved results in good works, Paul says, Amen. And again, you read this just a little bit ago on this one working screen over here. And here's what you read from Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8, 9, and 10. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. That's right. Listen to what Paul says in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation is by faith, and it results in good works. James and Paul give us a picture of salvation from two different perspectives. They do not contradict each other. One's not trying to fix the other or even defend the other. They're answering very different questions to help us understand this robust relationship we have with Jesus Christ. James and Paul would agree that salvation and obedience cannot be divorced from each other. I cannot claim a faith in Christ if my life does not give evidence that I walk with Him, that I obey Him, that I live my life in a way that looks like Christ. So far, we've got three, or excuse me, two essential characteristics of saving faith. Without obedience, it's dead. Second, it can't be split from obedience. You can't divide this up and just claim some sort of intellectual agreement altogether. And then third and finally, 
saving faith is proven by obedience. Without obedience, it's dead. It can't be split from it. And then finally, saving faith is proven by our obedience. Now, James gives us a couple of examples. Things turn positive here. James has been really heavy so far. Really, really heavy, in fact. He's, he wants to make sure the readers, the listeners, understand precisely what he's getting at. So back up in verse 19, right? he said to them, you believe that there's one God? Well, good. Even demons believe that. So there's something more that ought to be in place in our lives than just this intellectual assent. Saving faith must exceed in some way the faith of demons. So the sort of faith that just says, yeah, I believe there's a Jesus, well, that's on par with what the demons believe. There's something beyond that. Not just to agree that he existed, but James is calling us to believe certain things about Jesus and then to trust in Jesus entirely. And so having swung the hammer... In this heavy way, he then turns to a couple of positive examples to help us see what this really looks like. Evidence of saving faith through a person's obedience. So he turns to Abraham. And Abraham's story is fascinating. God speaks to Abraham on seven different occasions in the book of Genesis. And in each of those instances, God requires something of Abraham. And in each of those instances, God's requirements of Abraham increase in intensity until we get to the last encounter. And God tells Abraham, take your only child, Isaac, the child of promise. Take him up on Mount Moriah, build an altar, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, without hesitation, loads up the mule, gets the boy, and ascends the mountain. And he builds the altar, and he binds Isaac, and lays him on the altar, and he raises the knife, and God stops him. And in this instance, we see Abraham's faith evidenced by his obedience to God's word. God doesn't have to explain himself to Abraham. God doesn't have to say, here's what I'm going to do, or here's why I'm doing this. God gives the word, and it is expected of Abraham, expected of James, expected of me and you, that we would obey God. We would trust Him. And that's what Abraham has done. He's to be praised for that. He receives blessings for that. The second example is a woman named Rahab. She's a prostitute in the city of Jericho. She's a Gentile, not a Jew. And when these Israelite spies slip into Jericho, her actions on their behalf prove her trust in Yahweh. She hides them from danger, and then she tells them how to get out of the city so that they don't get caught. Her actions prove her faith. And if you trace the story of Rahab, she goes on to become a a woman of great honor and dignity among the people of Israel. Her faith is evidenced by what she does. Rahab's actions prove her faith. Abraham's actions prove his faith. What do your actions prove? If you were put on trial, accused of being a Christian, what evidence would be held against you? 
we can just look to what we've read in James so far these past few weeks, and, and there we can find some sort of measures for evaluating our faith. Are you persevering through difficulties? Do you pray in faith? Are you a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Do you care for vulnerable populations around you or hurting people? Do you show favoritism? Or do you treat all people with the value that is theirs in Jesus Christ? Now, I don't think James intends to give us an exhaustive list. Rather, I think he's simply calling us to follow Jesus, to pray like Him, to speak like Him, to love like Him. That's the model James wants you and I to follow. So here's a common question we wrestle with when we face passages like this. If I struggle with sin in my life, Is that because I'm not saved? I think so many of us have been in that place where we've concluded that the reason we still struggle with sin is because we were never saved to begin with. But we've got to be very, very careful with James here. He's not saying that we are saved by grace and then secured by works. I grew up in a tradition that taught that. I grew up in a denomination uh, for a few years that said, yes, salvation is free and through faith, but if you mess up, you obliterate all of it altogether. You've got to start over again. You've lost this salvation. It's your job to go back and get it all over again. That's not what James is talking about. James is not saying that salvation is secured by your good works. Or that now that you're saved, you better have your good outweigh your bad in order for that salvation to stick all the way through. The truth is that Christians make mistakes. And Christians sometimes make grand mistakes. We can sin in spectacular ways. And that is not automatically evidence of a heart that does not belong to Jesus Christ. It is evidence of a finite human being who needs the help of God the comfort of the Holy Spirit to guide us in our sanctification. So when sin enters the picture, or when it seems like sin is having its way with us, the solution is not to get saved again or to pray a sinner's prayer like some sort of lucky rabbit's foot. The answer is to find strength in the Christ who holds us, who saved us even though we were sinners and saves us even though we are still prone to wander. Our call is to trust in the God of our salvation who holds us through all of our sin. And we're ever motivated to fight against sin in our lives because Jesus saved us from the sins we have committed and the sins we will commit. And if He has saved us, then He has also secured us. You can take comfort in that this morning. The call from James may not be a call to salvation, but a call to repentance and confession and trust again in Jesus Christ. Now, when is it time to be alarmed? We cannot escape the fact that James, in very direct language, is saying there are some among you who are not saved. Again, I want to be careful here. 
But we've got to deal with the possibility that there might be some with us today who fit this category. Some of us who have an appearance of religiosity without a true saving faith. Here are some broad indications that you are religious, but your salvation may be in question. If you have no affection for Jesus, if you have no conviction for sin in your life, if you believe that your morality obligates God to you, if you are utterly indifferent to hurting people, if you inflict violence and evil on people. Now, rather than taking any list I can provide, these broad strokes, you are better off sitting with Scripture to answer the question, is there evidence of saving faith in my life? And if the answer is no, then friend, do not despair. The awareness of that answer is a grace from God to you. That you would not settle for some counterfeit Christianity, but that you would go only to the cross and receive what Christ has provided for you through his death and resurrection. To read James and to be alarmed and to recognize I've been living this counterfeit faith is God's love towards you calling you to be his child. The answer is to trust him, to love him, to turn to him, to live a life with evidence of a saving faith. So James has helped us understand that there is such a thing as false faith and there is such a thing as verifiable saving faith. And again, what does that saving faith look like? Well, without obedience, saving faith is dead. It doesn't exist. It can't be separated from obedience. It's not an option to choose from. And finally, it's proven through our Christ-like living. So trust in Christ and obedience to Christ go hand in hand for every believer. In 1886, the great evangelist Dwight Moody was just down the road in Brockton, Massachusetts. And he was preaching a revival and the worship leader that night was a man named Daniel Towner. And Towner Towner recalled a, a young man who stood to share in the service. They had a testimony time, a sharing time. And this young man stood up and he shared about how uncertain he was about his salvation. He was struggling with this issue of security. And Towner remembered the young man said this. He said, I'm not quite sure about these things, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. And that line struck Towner, so he wrote it down real quick. And then later, he wrote a letter to a friend named John Samus, a Presbyterian minister, And he included those words in that letter to his friend John. And Samus quickly sat down and wrote out five verses and a chorus. And the chorus says, Trust and obey, for there's no better way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Do you know that song came from Brockton? So... It's a classic hymn, right? It's well known today, and the reason it's well known is because it's anchored in the timeless truth that followers of Jesus trust Him for our salvation and obey Him as a result 
of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, may your day-to-day life testify to the reality of Christ in you. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for a salvation that is free, a salvation that is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who gave all, the one who died in our place, the one who took the penalty our sin requires, and the one who conquered death once and for all in his resurrection. Thank you for a salvation that is secure. And thank you for a salvation that turns dead people into living people. Thank you for a salvation that changes hearts from those of animosity and hate towards others to love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And thank you for a salvation that helps us to live our lives in the way of Christ, self-sacrificially, for the sake of the other, loving our neighbor as ourself, and Lord, above all, loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for so great a salvation as this. Lord, awaken the eyes of the one who has settled for a counterfeit Christianity, for a cultural Christianity. And Lord, call that friend today to true saving faith, evidenced by a life that follows you in obedience. Holy Spirit, bring conviction to my brothers and sisters who are battling sin today. Let us find our strength in you the one who guides us into all truth. I pray that you would give comfort to my friends in here today who are struggling with issues of security. Thank you that sin is defeated because Christ is alive. Thank you that our strength is in you, not in ourselves. Thank you that our perseverance is from you, not from ourselves. So all we have is yours today. We trust you. We exalt you. And we praise you, the God of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.